Lord, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that's how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him for seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And and Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and all his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father for seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham brought with the, bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father Joseph, returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that his father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived for 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin. In Egypt. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now as we pause to consider, 
what the ESV rightly reminds us is your good purposes. We pray for your blessing. We pray that you would give clarity of speech, clarity of thought. Father, we pray that uh, we would hear rightly. Lord, our desire is to uh, think thoughts of you that are good and right and true and biblical. So we would ask that this morning would guide us to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the more perplexing questions I used to get as a college student at Taylor University from a, a particular kind of evangelical Christian was this. What is God doing in your life? What is God doing in your life? Now, I understand the impetus of the question. God is at work, and God works not merely abstractly, but he works concretely. He works directly. He works in ways that should be evident in each of our lives. But older, more confessional traditions within the church know better than to ask that kind of question, or at least their confessions know better. Consider, if you would, the words of the Presbyterian theologian John Murray, who says, The providence of God is a dark and impenetrable abyss. It is unknown, not to God, but to us. Let me read that again. The providence of God is a dark and impenetrable abyss. It is unknown, not to God, but to us. What is God doing in my life? I have no idea. Ask me later. Ask me in roughly six months. Ask me in a year. Ask me in five years. Ask me in 20 years. Uh, Better yet, find me in heaven and ask me there. As we've been making our way through these last chapters of Genesis, We've seen that while Joseph is always mindful of God's presence in his life, he's not always certain of God's plan for his life. Joseph always knows that God is present with him, but he's not always certain of the plan that God has for his life. Consider, for example, in Genesis chapter 39, after Joseph finds himself sold into slavery, and he's now in the household of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife comes and tries to seduce him. Do you remember Joseph's response? He says in Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He was mindful of God's presence in his life. It wasn't about offending Potiphar. It was about offending God. And then in verse 21 of Genesis 39, Moses reminds us that even as Joseph is being sent into prison, the Lord was with him. And the Lord was going to go before him and give him favor. And then while he's in prison, when Pharaoh's cupholder and the baker come to him with these dreams, Joseph right away says, hey, listen, don't you know that interpretations belong to God? Joseph is always mindful of God's presence in his life. And now, as we come to our text for this morning, we see that God has given Joseph insight into his plan for his life. But here again, 
Joseph's comprehension is partial. For we need all of the Bible to see what God is really up to in the way in which he delivers Joseph and therefore delivers his covenant people. In your bulletin this morning, you'll see an outline for our time together, and you see there the big idea. The big idea in one sentence is hopefully what the sermon is about. So here's our big idea. The mystery... The mystery of God's providence animates and comforts the people of God. The mystery of God's providence animates and comforts the people of God. Three points we want to make this morning. And by the way, as we do this, uh, please note, uh, if you were to open any systematic theology and you were to go to the scripture index in the back and you were to look up Genesis chapter 50, verses 20 and 21, you would see a list of references as long as your arm in the book. This is one of the key texts for understanding uh, both the will of God and the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, all of those things get introduced to us in a very powerful way here in Genesis chapter 50. And so this morning, in roughly half an hour, uh, we're basically going to hit the haze and the hose. Uh, We cannot get a long, deep, in-depth look at this. There have literally been uh, dissertations uh, written about the providence of God or about uh, how God uses evil, how God is sovereign over these things. And so this morning, uh, we want to try to stick to, let's look at what the text says and then make some connections and do so in roughly half an hour. So I have 24 minutes left. First, We see bold and decisive action. We see bold and decisive action. When we say that God's providence is a mystery, unfortunately at times the people of God use it as an excuse to not act. We comfort ourselves by saying, well, listen, if if God is sovereign, then I don't really need to do anything. Or if God's going to do what he says he's going to do, then why does anything that I do matter? And yet this morning on either side of the text that tells us of God's good purposes in his plan for Joseph's life, we see two burial texts. We see two sets of funeral arrangements that are being made. From the end of Genesis chapter 49 through the end of Genesis chapter 50, verse 14, we see how it is that Jacob is buried in the land of his fathers. And then in verse 22 through the end of Genesis chapter 50, we're told about the funeral arrangements that Joseph makes. He understands, given his role and his position in Egypt, that initially he's going to have to be buried there. But that will not be his final resting place. In other words, both Jacob and Joseph, on the basis of the covenant promises of God, take bold and decisive action. They want to be buried in the land of promise. And they want to be buried in the land of promise because God has promised that particular land to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to their descendants. 
How is God going to bring that about? Well, that's up to God. That's part of his providence. But understanding that God is sovereign, understanding that God's providence is in play, understanding that there is a mystery involved in all of this does not stop Jacob and Joseph from acting and from acting decisively. Unfortunately, the mystery of God's providence and the reality of God's sovereignty can sometimes hamstring us from acting as we know we ought to act. Remember a conversation in seminary uh, when I was at Southern Seminary, the idea of Calvinism was uh, much debated. And I remember a friend of mine saying that he didn't know much about Calvinism, except that if you were a Calvinist, there wasn't really any room to do evangelism. In other words, the sovereignty of God would hamstring you when it came to actually uh, taking the initiative and sharing the good news of the gospel with those who have never heard it. But it isn't just about sort of salvific issues that we can get hamstrung. Several years ago, we were at uh, we were part of a church in Lexington. Uh, there was a young man in the church. He just graduated from college. He was working a kind of a crummy job for a year before he was going to go off to seminary. He was helping out with RUF at the University of Kentucky. Uh, I got to know him. We, we had breakfast a couple different times. Uh, he was dating a woman in the church. A uh, great lady. She was a dentist, uh, loved Jesus for some unknown reason, loved him. And I remember one Sunday between Sunday school and church, he came and he grabbed me and he grabbed the RUF minister and he pulled us into a room and he said, like, I don't know what to do here. OK, we need you to be a little more specific. He's like, "Here, it's really simple. Like, Stephanie's awesome. I love her. She loves me. I think I want to ask her to marry me, but I don't know what God's will is. And we're like, dude, don't don't be smarter than the program here. Like she loves Jesus. She loves you. Ask her to marry you. Why? Why is this even? Why are we even having this conversation other than the fact that you're like 22 and you don't have a clue about really anything? But in his mind, he was hamstrung because it's like, well, I, I need to know what the will of the Lord is. Well, OK, there's no obvious sin in your life. It's what you want to do. She's amazing. She's way better than you deserve. And yet she's at least willing to entertain your offer of marriage. So what are, what are we doing here? Fast forward this last summer to uh, General Assembly. I'm standing in the main hallway talking to uh, the, the head of the crime family that I'm a part of in the PCA, uh, John Sartell. In comes Eric and Stephanie Whitley with their four kids and we stop because they were at Tate's Creek. John married them. We have this sort of reunion. And then Eric, John leaves and the family leaves. And uh, Eric pulls me aside. And he's like, hey, I want you to know, I tell the story because he's now the RUF minister at the University of Indiana. He's like, I tell that story all the time to kids. It's like, don't be an idiot. How do you know God's plan for your life? Well, actually do something. Pursue it. It's not that hard. She loves Jesus. She loves you. You love Jesus. You love her. Ask her to marry you. Why, why is this going to be a big deal? He's like, it was crucial because I was, I was, he's like, I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm glad that you and the RUF guy, I'm glad you guys talked to me and I, I, I use it all the time. Friends, the providence of God, 
shouldn't hamstring us. It should embolden us. It should animate us. We should be attempting great things, things that we know would fail on our own, understanding that the God who created all things is with us. Understanding that it is God himself who rules and reigns. And he's given us a commission. He's given us a task. He's called us to a particular work. And so we don't sit around. We don't engage in theological navel-gazing. We can, like Jacob and like Joseph, on the basis of God's covenant promises, we can act boldly and we can act decisively. Secondly, we need to wrestle with some foundational truths. We need to wrestle with some foundational truths. Now, again, uh, there has been much written about this question of God's providence. There's much written about the mystery of God and his goodness over and against evil in the world. As we try to understand God's sovereignty, the word mystery is the one that we like to use because it's the word that fits. And while we certainly appreciate, we we, we can intellectually grasp the notion of mystery. In practice, we don't care for it much. So let's begin by giving a basic definition of providence. According to the Westminster Confession, God's providence is his superintending of all things according to the counsel of his will. God's providence is his superintending of all things according to the counsel of his will. So we've broken that down into kind of three basic propositions, three foundational truths we need to wrestle with. First, let's understand that God's sovereign rule is the ground of reality. God's sovereign rule is the ground of reality. I love the words of the Puritan John Flavel. Flavel was uh, writing about Genesis chapter 15. He was thinking about each of us as individual people. And he was thinking about us in terms of that we're male, female, and our position in life and what we look like and the color of our hair and the color of our eyes and are we tall, are we short, are we thin, are we maybe not so thin? Flavel writes this. He says, there is a world of cause cast upon your very body. There is a world of cause cast upon your very body. In other words, Flavel understands that it is God's providence, it is God's sovereign rule that has you the way you are. It is God's providence that had you born into the family to which you were born into. It is God's providence which has you born in the time and the place and all the other things that we go, huh, I don't even, I, I was just born, I don't know. Well, friends, God's sovereign rule is the ground of all of that. I wonder then if that shouldn't cause us to stop and view some things that are going on in our culture with a little different eye. See, when folks say, well, yes, I was... I know that biologically I was born male or I was born female, but I think the cosmos made a mistake. And I'm choosing a different gender. Friends, let's understand that that statement is not a rebellion against nature or biology. That statement is a rebellion against God. He's the creator. 
His sovereign rule is the ground of all reality, including your gender. Now, I know that we tend to respond to those kinds of things with anger. We tend to respond to those kinds of things with a particular kind of revulsion. But I wonder this morning uh, if we shouldn't have a particular kind of compassion. And here's what I mean by that. If you are in rebellion against the very God who created you, and if you are in rebellion against the God whose sovereign rule is the ground of all reality, how well do you think that's going to end? So I wonder, where is our compassion? Not compassion in the sense of, oh, you're right, you're so brave, it's wonderful you're doing this. Yes, the universe got it wrong. Evolution got it wrong. No, but compassion in the sense of saying, friend, don't you understand you are rebelling against the very God who created you? And he's sovereign. He rules and reigns. You see, what you think was an accident is actually a gift. It's a gift from the one who made you. You are, you are fantastically made. And your creation was an intentional act by the one who made, created, and loves you. God's sovereign rule is the ground of all reality. Secondly, we see in, in this confession in verse 20 that God rules over evil. And you see there in parentheses then, we're not Jedi or Sith. You know, well, what does that mean? If you're not a Star Wars fan, I apologize. Uh, you can do better. You can be a Star Wars fan and you'll be better for it. But you know that in the Star Wars canon, uh, there's this never-ending sort of struggle between the light side and the dark side. And the thinking is, well, if you have light, you need darkness. And there are these two opposing forces. And what we want is not for the light to eliminate the dark or the dark to eliminate the light. What we really need is we need balance within the force. Well, again, if you're a Star Wars fan, that's great. But that's not the way the Bible presents reality. We don't need balance within the force. What we need is a sovereign God who rules and reigns over all things, including evil. And that's exactly what we have. Joseph tells his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God overruled your evil intentions. God is sovereign over all things, including evil. I love the way that Luther put it. Uh, Luther characteristically uh, in a way that's memorable, says that even the devil is God's devil. Even the devil is God's devil. Joseph can look back on his life, understanding then the purposes of God, and say to his brothers, listen, you tried what you tried to do was evil, but God overruled it. God meant it for good. And in human intentions for evil, over and against God's sovereign intentions for good, God always wins. God rules over evil. We see that then finally and ultimately in that third point under point number two. That God uses evil as he accomplishes his good 
purposes. It's not just that God overcame evil, but that God actually used the evil intentions and the evil purposes of Joseph's brothers as they threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. He used the evil intentions and purposes of Potiphar's wife as she sought to seduce him. He used all of that to accomplish his good purposes. Now, that's not the last time we're going to hear about that in the Bible. In the New Testament passage that Jenny read for us, as the Apostle Peter is addressing the gathered crowd on the day of Pentecost, he says to them, and, and please note, uh, Peter does not in any way, shape, or form try to excuse what they did. He doesn't say, hey, it's okay, because, you know, God was going to use it. But listen to what he says in verse 23 of Acts chapter 2. Turn back again to page 1097 in your pew Bible. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So in other words, here's Jesus. Jesus is delivered up to be crucified. Why? Because it was God's plan. How does God bring his plan about? How is God going to accomplish his good purpose? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God in his providence, God in his sovereignty, God in his grace, God in his mercy. God takes the most ridiculous, evil miscarriage of justice in the history of the world and uses it to deliver his people. Now, friends, note, there's no sense of struggle in the statement Peter makes. He's not saying to them, well, you know, <laughs> it was sort of nip and tuck there for a little bit. We weren't sure how it was going to end up. No. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. How did he do it? You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. He doesn't try to excuse their actions. He doesn't say, but you know, it's okay, it was a misunderstanding. He doesn't proclaim to them, as we would think today, well, hey, listen, we're all just victims here, right? We're all living under Roman rule and occupation, and so we're all victims, and we all had parents that didn't love us enough, and we all grew up in this system, and no, no, you crucified him. You killed him. But God... This was God's plan. This was God's foreknowledge. Again, I love the way that John Flavel puts it. He says, in participating in his death, he's talking now back about uh, Joseph and, and his brothers. In participating in his death, they are unwillingly participating in the salvation of many. And friends, when we read this confession in Genesis chapter 50, we ought immediately to think of how God used the evil of the cross to accomplish his good purposes. Is God sovereign over evil? Yes. 
In fact, God is so sovereign over evil that he can use the evil intentions of the human heart in such a way to accomplish his good purposes. And he does. One of the things next week we're going to see is that God works through his anointed servant in order to bring about the salvation of many people. You would think that the world would welcome God's chosen servant with open arms. But they don't. They don't. But our God is sovereign even over that. Thirdly and finally, let's take a lifetime to say I knew you well. There is an interesting uh, bit of repetition in the very end of Genesis chapter 50. And I have to admit, it stumped me all week. I wasn't sure uh, why it's there. We know that in narrative, in the Bible, particularly in Old Testament narrative, the writer uses repetition to emphasize a particular point. And so in verse 22, and then again in verse 26, Moses tells us that Joseph was 110 years old. Okay, why do we care? Why, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does Moses want to emphasize the fact that Joseph was 110 years old? Well, let's think back about the life of Joseph. You may recall that in Genesis chapter 37, we know that Joseph was roughly 17 years old when he came down to breakfast wearing the coat of many colors. He was roughly that same age then when his brothers took him, stripped him of the coat, beat him, threw him in a hole, and sold him into slavery. We think he was probably uh, maybe a few years older by the time he made the trip uh, from Canaan into Egypt and then was sold into the household of Potiphar. There, Joseph does the right thing in spurning the advances of his master's wife, and he suffers for it. Then he's in prison, wants desperately to get out of prison. In fact, tells his two new friends, the baker and the cupbearer, hey, I just want the Lord to get me out of here so I can go home. It's all I want. And tells them, interprets their dreams for them, and says for them, as he's waving goodbye to them as they're leaving the prison, hey, please don't forget me. And what does the text tell us? The cupbearer forgot Joseph. And then God, uh, suddenly the cupbearer remembers him and Joseph is called. He's cleaned up and shaved. They put new clothes on him. They bring him before Pharaoh to interpret the dream. And again, what's Joseph want to do? Joseph just wants to go home. So the writer, Moses, is reminding us that for roughly 83 years, Moses, excuse me, Joseph has known the presence of the Lord. Through all that has gone on in his life, through all the things he didn't understand, through all the things he couldn't see his way clear of, through all the things in which God has a plan for him that was not his own. Joseph just wanted to go home. He didn't want to be the number two guy in the land of Egypt. He's like, dude, I just want to get out of here and go home. It's what I want to do. But God had a different plan for him. And so I think what Moses is doing is he's emphasizing for us that over 83 years, Joseph has been walking with the Lord. 
He's been mindful of God's presence. He has, in the words of the carpenters, let's take a lifetime to say, I knew you well. Now, if you don't know who the carpenters are, uh, again, you're blessed. means you weren't a child of the 70s. It means your parents didn't subject you to eight-track eight track, uh, tapes of their recordings and their brother-sister duo in the 70s. And it's, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? To be able to say, as Joseph did, I didn't know all of God's plan for my life. But here's what I did know. I did know God's presence. Again, John Flavel, in speaking of the mystery of God's providence, says, it is the soft pillow on which the Christian rests their head at night. It's the soft pillow on which the Christian lays their head at night. Joseph had 83 years of seeing and understanding the presence of God. He didn't always understand God's plan, but he knew his presence. And he knew the God who called him. He knew the God who redeemed him. It's interesting, isn't it? Because even Joseph's confession in Genesis chapter 50 is not the end of God's purpose for his life. No, Joseph, in his confession, points us forward to the Lord Jesus. And this morning, as we come to the table, we understand that it is the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that reveal God's plan for us. Remember what we said, that through the faithfulness, through the suffering of the chosen servant, God is bringing about salvation of the many. And just as God overruled the evil of Joseph's brothers to bring about the salvation of many, so too in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are reminded of God's plan and God's purpose. But more than that, we believe that the Lord Jesus is present in his sacrament spiritually. And so not only are we reminded this morning of God's plan, but we are invited to come and to participate in the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're invited to spiritually partake of him. As God reminds us of his covenant faithfulness, as God reminds us of his sovereign rule, and that he uses evil to accomplish his good purposes. Friends, that is the pillow on which we rest our heads at night. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you this morning and we, we confess. Um, we know sh we should be comforted by this notion of your providence, but at times... Uh, we're, we're just, we're not. We're not because we can't see the plan and we, we lack faith and we really want to see the plan. Or we can't because we can't see the plan and we think sort of foolishly that you probably want our input on the plan. Or Father, uh, we confuse sometimes uh, being an American and being a citizen in a democratic republic with being a Christian. Uh, 
because we know we read it in the Bible or in the Constitution or somewhere that uh, that the the uh, the authority of those who govern comes from the consent of the governed. And in your sovereignty, you didn't ask us for our consent. So, Lord, in all the ways that we are prone to kick against the goads of your providence, in all the ways that we will left to ourselves, we will buck against your sovereignty. We pray that you would forgive us. And Father, when we find ourselves struggling and wrestling and wondering about your plan for us, would your spirit bring to our mind the picture of your son on the cross? And would we learn from the Lord Jesus the faith that says, into your hands I commit my spirit. For we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.